We'll be in Revelation chapter 20 this morning. Revelation 20. And we're just going to look at verses 1 through 10. Uh, it's only 15 verses, the, the whole chapter. But uh, verses 11 through 15 touch on a different topic than verses 1 through 10. And there's a lot of discussion that could potentially take place just in this first part of the chapter anyway. So we're going to kind of take it easy and uh, work our way through this. So Revelation chapter 20, part 1, we'll be talking about the coming kingdom. So in the last chapter, Revelation 19, we saw how Christ will return with his saints and uh, the judgment of Antichrist and his armies and of the false prophet and discussed how they were the only two people really in uh, world history that have ever gone straight into the lake of fire without having suffered a physical death. So they went from being alive straight to uh, basically eternal judgment. But we're going to be looking here at uh, just these first few verses. And um, if you look at your outline, it says this, point number one, the establishment of the kingdom. We're going to talk about the establishment of the kingdom. In verses one through six here. And uh, right now, just real quick, uh, can I get a volunteer to read verses one through three? Just those. Paul? And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Okay, so... Here is uh, basically the binding of Satan. If you look at letter A there, it says, after the return of Christ, Satan will be imprisoned. Satan will be imprisoned. Now, I made this comment before that um, you, uh, you and I have probably never been tempted by the devil directly, the devil himself. Most of the sin we are tempted to comes from just our own sinful natures. On occasion, there may be some kind of an actual demonic influence there, some sort of an oppressive presence that is actively tempting. But uh, Satan himself, you know, the, the grand master of temptation, probably very few people on the earth today have actually been tempted by him directly. But uh, what we do see here is his imprisonment, so he won't be able to go around deceiving the nations uh, and when Christ sits on the throne, is there still going to be a lot of temptation to sin? Yes, there will be. But the scripture says, and we've kind of already seen how that is going to be judged right at the outset. Impenitent sinners, you know, there will be a perfect justice system. Somebody commits a crime, they're, they're going to be judged by, they're going to be probably rounded up by an incorruptible police. Uh, they're going to be judged by an incorruptible court. And uh, they're going to stay in a prison, and, you know, it, it, or if it's a, it, we really don't know what the legal system is going to be. Will there be the death penalty? Yeah, we do see evidence of that. But what, um, under Christ's reign, overt unrighteousness is not going to be tolerated the way it is today. It's just not going to be. <laughs> so, so there's going to be extreme encouragement <laughs> to not do stuff. So we're, we're going to be. We're going to see that, but on t uh, also absent will be uh, Satan <clears throat> from the picture. Now, 
I want you to understand something here. Number one, there are four supernatural aspects to Satan's imprisonment. First of all, we see an angel. <clears throat> we do see that angel. And it's possibly Christ himself. It says here that the, the angel has the key of the bottomless pit. And uh, Revelation 1.18 seems to make a similar statement about Jesus Christ. We'll flip back to that real quick. It says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of death, of hell and of death. So this abyss, it could be Jesus. Now, there's lots of folks that, that equate the abyss with hell, not the lake of fire, because it says here in the, in the end of the book that uh, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Hell seems to be a, contempor- a temporary confinement, <laughs> a holding place of the wicked dead who are uh, basically there in flames like the lake of fire, but they're there presently until that final judgment day that we'll see next week. And then after that, death itself, so basically the curse and the temporary containment system are all going to be bagged up, bundled together and tossed in the lake of fire along with everybody uh, that, you know, the, the wicked dead. Now, uh, but looking in here, the angel could possibly be Christ himself. I think it's certainly a possibility. But there's a key to a bottomless pit. The bottomless pit may or may not be synonymous with hell. I think there's a strong indication that it is because we have the, these, this is the same abyss, the same bottomless pit from which the, the hordes of demons were released and uh, to, to torment people. And those are still running around, by the way. At this time, when, when we see Christ has returned, Antichrist armies are, are pretty much gone. Antichrist and the false prophet have been thrown into the pit, but we haven't seen anything really done about the demonic activity yet. And I think that is sort of taken for granted when we see Satan bound and thrown. So if they're not going to let uh, the, the king of demons run free, they're certainly going to round up all of the others and, and, and toss them away. So, uh, but right here, the angel could possibly be Christ himself. It could just be an angel uh, who is, uh, it could be Michael, though he's not named here. Also, we see the great chain, the great chain. The spiritual is better than the, or is greater than the physical. The spiritual is greater than the physical. And compare this passage here, what we've just read with Mark chapter 5, verse 3. Can I get a volunteer just to shout that one out real good? Mark chapter 5, verse 3. This is the demoniac of Gadara. What's said about him? Okay. Okay, so these are physical chains that they've tried to use to bind a physical man, but the demons that were in him, spiritual beings, gave him power enough to break the chains. And yet here we see an angel coming with spiritual chains that will bind a spiritual being. So the same, the same being that could not even... Uh, the physical chains, which couldn't bind a physical demon under, uh, or a physical man under demonic influence, they wouldn't work, but these spiritual chains will hold. They will hold a spiritual influence. So there's a lot of times we, we think about, um, 
we think about angels and demons as though they're, they're immaterial. And so how can two immaterial things grab a hold of each other? Now, how is that possible? But the Bible doesn't say that they're in, immaterial. It says that they're spiritual. So does spirit have a form of uh, material? Yes. It's just not reactive with what we see here. It's not reactive with, uh, with this kind of material, matter and energy like we'd have it today. We do see where God has uh, seemingly bound certain angels, certain demons in uh, the river Euphrates, in possibly the center of the earth. But there's, there's a supernatural aspect to that. God said, this is going to be sufficient to bind you. Here's where you're going to stay. And his word on that is, is sufficient. But these, these supernatural beings that we see here, or these, um, I'm sorry, these uh, supernatural chains are going to bind Satan. Then there's a bottomless pit. Now we've talked about that. Uh, probably the same from which the demonic hordes arose. Uh, we, t- we see where, where these are these seem to be reserved to judgment from 2 Peter 2.4 and from Jude verse 6. Uh, and that will again be shut up. It will be sealed up. It was, it was opened back earlier in the book of Revelation un- as a form of judgment of God. God released them and let them do their thing for a little bit as they were reserved unto judgment, the Bible tells us. But, uh, but apparently at this time, Satan himself will be bound with chains, tossed in a pit, and then that's going to be sealed. It says that he'll be shut up. And then letter D there, the seal itself, either the seal on the covering of the pit or upon Satan himself. You know, this particular thing has been sort of uh, the stuff that a lot of science fiction and uh, fanciful tales have been made up around. If you've uh, ever seen the original Twilight Zone, Rod Serling had a, he had a, uh, uh, an episode where this guy was in the monastery, uh, he was visiting, and Satan was locked up. Uh, it, it, they had the, these, these monks had Satan locked up and there was supposed to be like Moses staff was kind of the lock on the door that kept and you, you get all sorts of fanciful kinds of things, fun things that people do with that. We see in, in, in video games a lot where, well, there's this, there's this seal like a, 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 a paper Mario, you know, paper Mario had this, had this demon that was locked up behind the door and it had a seal on it. Sealed doors are, are always sort of an ominous thing in scripture. You know, if you take a look at even at the, at, at the tomb of Christ, had an imperial seal on it. That was the emperor saying, that here's a man that even dead is so dangerous. We don't want anybody to be able to access his body. Partly, we don't want anybody to be able to say, I'll oh, see, he rose again after they stole the body. And so there was a seal on it and a guard set around it. If you take a look, um, it probably looked a lot today or looked a lot then, like today, we would see, you know, guards, uh, the, the Marine security forces guarding Navy nukes. Tape, border tape, two guys standing inside it, big door, warning signs all over the place, you know. Uh, it's just, it's kind of, kind of an ominous thing. And so here's this, if you picture it, there's this, we won't be able to see it, but it's a pit with a lid and a seal the seal of God. Who knows what's written on that seal or what images? It doesn't say. But it's an ominous kind of a thing. The person behind this door is so dangerous. 
that simply to have a locked door and have them confined in chains is not good enough. We're going to set a seal on it uh, as well. But I think there's also a connection there to Matthew 12, 29. Matthew 12, 29. Let me grab that. And Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one Lord. Uh, is that Matthew 12, 29? Oh, I was one. <laughs> Reading Mark first. Okay, I see you're a fan of Mark and priority. Okay. Um, don't know that I completely subscribe to that, but... 12, Go ahead. Yeah, 1229, I think is what I... Yeah, 1229. I was talking about one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except the first find the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Okay, so Satan has had rule and reign over the earth for a while. He's, remember, he's basically the, the, the space is on loan. God is still supreme, but Satan has had a limited authority. And now God's coming back, says, okay, time's up. And uh, what's he do? He binds the owner of the house. He binds the strong man. And so uh, we see a lot of different connections, some things that we see from, from, from earlier in the New Testament and also from the Old Testament here. And number three, there's a debate over the meaning of 1,000 years. There's a debate over the meaning of 1,000 years. We're not going to get into a lot of this except to say that the post-millennial... Now, now listen. How, how many of you have never heard the term post-millennialism before? Don't be ashamed. Okay, one. All right. Post-millennialism has to do with the idea that there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ, but that Christ comes back after it's over. So basically that means that the church is supposed to usher in the millennial reign of Christ by, making, by converting everybody to Christians and making everything so good that the world just doesn't have any problems anymore. That's not biblical. Um, but uh, that, that, that 1,000 years is the time that Christ will reign on earth. The post-millennialists uh, take this 1,000 years to be symbolic of the church age. We're about 1,000 years overdue for that, <laughs> if that's the case. But also, um, we see here that it's highly unlikely given what this, uh, the position of Scripture itself. So, this thousand years that Satan is bound for. Somebody, let's, let's go through and read these. Um, I'm going to get 1 Corinthians. Somebody else can grab 2 Corinthians. And then the others, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 4 through 5. It says this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and in uh, and my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what he's saying there is basically, uh, hey, I'm just going to let the devil have him because he's been... He's been acting up. Uh, he's talking about moral standards here. And so, uh, but what, what does it say? Who's got 2 Corinthians? Go ahead. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now, the point here is this. The church age started with the resurrection of Christ. Really? Uh, and really had picked up full swing, full swing at the day of Pentecost. 
And Paul is writing these things to founded churches well after those events had taken place. So um, Paul's in the church age. He's writing to churches. And he's saying that the devil is actually, you know, he's still blinding minds. And, and some of them, you just, you know, I'm going to let the devil. Now, he, he said that with apostolic authority, we understand. Um, but uh, what, what else? What else we have here? Look at um, first. Let's see. Second Corinthians 12, 7. Yes. Okay, so God let uh, some sort of a, it says the messenger of Satan. Now, now, if it was just some sort of a physical trial or tribulation, Paul wouldn't have called it a messenger of Satan. A lot of folks think it was probably his eyes, could be, but it seems to be that there was some sort of a demonic influence that was allowed to affect his eyes. Kind of like we think of Job. Satan was allowed to, to do things to Job. So, and this was for the purpose of keeping Paul humble, but very specifically, he says it was a messenger of Satan. So whatever form it, it took, that was from him. So again, we're in the church age and Satan's still sending out messengers and God had to put a seal of approval on that. What's the, what's the last one here? First Peter 5, 8. Okay. Yeah. So there's Peter writing about him in the church age. Very clearly, in the present tense, saying he's walking around. So none of this looks like chains and, in, and imprisonment in the abyss. This is all you know, very, very real, still walking around. So the idea that, that the thousand years is symbolic of the church age and Satan somehow doesn't have any power is completely unbiblical. So we want to um, make this observation here with Henry Morris, letter B. The word thousand or thousands is frequently used in the New Testament, but never before in any kind of symbolic sense. You know, it's, ne it's never been used symbolically in this way. But letter B, the Messianic kingdom will be established in righteousness. Established in righteousness. Okay, somebody grab verses 4 through uh, 6, please. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Whoever's got it. Revelation 20. Fourth, okay. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again, until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with them a thousand years. Okay, great. So here again is this reference to a thousand years. Uh, but we see that the millennial kingdom will be established in righteousness. So number one there under letter B, we see that the saints will reign with Christ. The saints will reign with Christ. And these are the, the same ones who returned with Christ in Revelation chapter 19. When he says, these sat upon thrones, 
the, 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 or they sat on the thrones. The they is in reference to the saints that are coming back with Christ that we saw in Revelation chapter 19. But whether all the saints will reign has been the topic of much discussion. We kind of talked about this a little bit before in, in, in other lessons along the way, but it's, it's a legitimate discussion. There may be an indication in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. That's, we won't go there, but that's where it talks about the rewards, that, that when your works will be judged by Christ, and even if all your works burn up, you're going to pass through. So you might get through with nothing you know, uh, but yourself, but, but, but you'll get through. Now, so there, there's going to be some different levels of rewards. So how does that impact our view? Uh, those that, who have little or no rewards may not reign. But this con- uh, condition seems only hypothetical in light of uh, Matthew 10.42 and Mark 9.41. Now, let's, I'll grab Matthew 10.42. Somebody else grab Mark 9.31. Some, somebody besides Paul can read. Paul gets to read all the time, but somebody else can have the honor today. Um, but, but here's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42, and whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. What's Mark 9, 41 say? Who's got 9, 40? Holly? Okay, so here's the thing. Um, what he's talking about, just a cup of water. You know, there's probably rewards that, that, that we get, we don't even think anything about doing, you know? Um, just, just, so is anybody going to get through with no rewards? I, it just, it doesn't seem likely when you, when you consider that that Jesus is saying, you know, there's rewards for just little things, you know. And so uh, it could be a hypothetical situation there. Um, but this is a special reference to tribulation martyrs. There is a special reference to tribulation martyrs who may hold some special office of authority. You know, uh, here that we've already read that the emphasis seems to be on those who were beheaded for Christ. And they would be tribulation martyrs. So, is it everybody that rules and reigns? Now, now listen, personally, do I believe everybody will? Yes. I'm just saying that there, there will definitely be, I think, different levels. If we take a look at uh, uh, Luke 19 there, the parable of the, of the pounds, it seems to be everybody got the same pound, but everybody was a little bit more effective in, in, in using their, their, their pound or their mina. And they... Uh, uh, they were rewarded according to their output, you know. Uh, equal opportunity God gave everybody one pound, that you, but you were rewarded based on your, on your output. So equal opportunity, yes. Equal result, no. But he rewards based on that. So what is it? How are we, uh, how are we to view this? 
It could be that those who maybe have more rewards, and I'm just speculating. Listen, there's really no scripture for this. But think about how many people will be alive on earth after you've had all the natural disasters, after you've had all the wars, after you've had uh, uh, you know, that great big battle at the end of it, and the, just like I said, the tremendous natural disasters that are going, how many people do you think are going to be alive on the face of the planet after, you know, by the time Christ comes back? And so then when, when we see that they're judged... As far as to, on this life, who's getting into the millennial kingdom? We don't really have any idea about that. It might not be a really long line, comparatively speaking. So, will you need billions of saints for a rule and for a righteous government over, you know, what might only be a few million people, if that? No, you don't need that. That would be a bloated bureaucracy, not a perfect kingdom. But the sin curse gets lifted. People live longer. They have more children. There's, uh, there's, there's going to be less in the way of disease and different things like that. No crime that, that, that goes unpunished anyway. No wars between the nations. You could have many kids, and it could be that as the population increases, the, the, ones, who, uh, uh, the ones who maybe... Maybe they're, they're, they didn't have as many rewards or what have you. They didn't come out quite as well off as somebody else who just lived their entire life for Christ. Maybe that person will, will come in to rule and reign kind of towards the tail end of it. And maybe there are some that are going to reign with him right from the very start. And they're the ones that fared the best. And the, I, I, I don't know. It doesn't say. And I'll tell you this. It's really not worth worrying about. Because the scripture is clear about one thing. Live your best for Jesus. That's all. Everybody needs to be saved. And at that point, they need to be focused on being the person that God called them to be. And nothing else is going to matter. It'll it'll matter to us at the day of judgment, you know, when we see our works go through the fire. We may may wish that we'd have done a little more when we had the opportunity. But you know what? If, if I just end up being a dog catcher in the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to be fine with being a dog catcher. You know why? Because I won't have a natural spirit of envy. <laughs> uh, my position will be my position, and there's not going to be any of this, you know, uh, Antifa won't be in heaven demanding social justice for, you know, everything, because there's going to be justice. Now, um, so that we, but we continue here. Let us see. We are told, however... That the church will be co-regent with Christ. Will be co-regent with Christ. The church is viewed as a, as a single unit here in, in Revelation. We see the, symbolized in the, probably in the 24 elders. But as far as uh, the church on earth, you always see it referred to as the, bride, as the body of Christ. Any reference to the church in heaven is seen as the bride of Christ. And so it's a, it's a collective uh, of, of, who, of saved people down through the ages but Jesus promised the church would, would rule and reign. We don't have time to go there, but you can look at Luke 19, 11 through 27, Revelation 1, 5 and 6, uh, Revelation 2, 26 and 27, and 5, 9 through 10. The apostles, or the seeds of the church, if you want to think of them that way, were specifically promised rulership uh, over the 12 tribes. 
And Jesus mentioned that in Matthew 9, 28. So the apostles, their church age, the apostles have a, a particular office already appointed to them to judge the 12 tribes. Paul wrote about the co-regency of the church in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 2 Corinthians 2, 12. So there are scriptures that tell us that. And those are blanket scriptures. Uh, just, just talk about the apostles have something specific and the church is going to rule and reign with Christ. Number two. Interestingly, the kingdom is mentioned only in passing. The focus of the passage that we just read is on distinguishing resurrections. A thousand, you think about it, the, the, the book of Revelation from like chapter, you know, chapter four on through this chapter, the end of this chapter, has, been, has spent its time describing the events of about seven years. And look at the way in just a few short verses it glosses over the events of a thousand years. That's an interesting perspective. It's an interesting way of looking at, you know, you'd think that all the time the Bible has spent building up this kingdom. And all the time Jesus talked about it and the disciples were talking, and and the book of Revelation has been building up to it. It's, It's almost anticlimactic. As a matter of fact, I think I used the word somewhere down here. Um, well, we'll see in a bit, <laughs> but, uh, but it seems to be this passage is distinguishing resurrections. There's a reference to the first resurrection a couple of times and, and about how there's another one that's going to take place after that. Uh, scripture defines two resurrections, Revelation 1, 5 through 6, uh, John five twenty nine, Acts 24, 15. It talks about the first resurrection. And another resurrection. Let's go to Acts 24, 15. I believe that's the one that would be most useful in the short amount of time we have left. Acts 24 and verse 15. Yes. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And as we, as we see here in, in Revelation and then uh, in other parts of the New Testament, there are people who talk about a first resurrection. Now, the resurrection here that he's talking about, being blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. When was the first resurrection? In other words, it's not just one resurrection and then another resurrection. I think you're probably talking about two different kinds of... So the first kind of resurrection and the second kind of resurrection. The second kind of resurrection will only happen once. But the first resurrection, even the resurrection of Christ wasn't the first one. We had it happen in the Old Testament. Jesus did it in the New Testament. The apostles did it. Um, And now we're seeing this. So, So this first resurrection is probably the first kind of resurrection because it always only seems to involve one classification of person, saved. Uh, When we talk about the first resurrection here, it's a resurrection to blessing. So those who have eternal life. But the other resurrection is seen if we look up here in verse number, number five, but the rest of the dead live not again until a thousand years were finished. And so there's a, 
That second resurrection, all the judgment of the wicked passing before the, 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 the great white throne, and, and we'll see that next week, is, uh, is, a, is a one-time kind of occurrence. Right now, if you want to think about it, they're in jail uh, awaiting trial with, uh, with no possibility for uh, bond. <laughs> so, yes. Okay, when the scripture says here, this is the first resurrection, it's talking about a, a, a literal resurrection from the dead. Yeah, I got that. Okay. Okay, but you're saying there's two resurrections. Yes, because there's a resurrection from the dead that is unto eternal life, and then like we just read, uh, a resurrection that is uh, to damnation. So there are, so there are, two, there are two, re- two kinds of resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the scripture is calling it that. Uh, it says the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And so it says they were dead and they'll live again. They're, they're going to be basically taken from that one condition to stand trial. And then they're consigned to the lake of fire. Let me just ask right now for the sake of, t- yeah, for the sake of time. We got quite a bit to burn through yet. But if y'all want to talk about the, about the re- subject of resurrection... We can, take, we can take a week to do that. We're probably going to spend a lot of time talking about next week anyway. And this is something we probably need to spend a little more time on because we're, I've got a lot of outline left. Um, Acts 24 and verse 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And then it says, furthermore, both of the just and of the unjust. So now, if the lake of fire is the second death, and the unjust are going to go into the lake of fire, it calls that a resurrection. So there's one kind of resurrection that is definitely to life, and the other kind that is definitely to death. In the, as, we would, as we commonly think about resurrection, uh, it, we, we do think of it as being from the dead to, the, to life. And even back here in Revelation chapter uh, 20, verse 5, it says that the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And then uh, later on, we'll read in verses 11 through 15 about that particular group of people. So there's a, there's a uh, the, it, it sort of defies the way we commonly think of resurrection. But if you look at what the scripture is saying there, we're not left with any other choice other than to understand that one group is resurrected to eternal life and another group is resurrected to basically eternal destruction because the lake of fire is the second death and you couldn't have a second death unless the first death, the first death had ended. You see what I'm saying? So th- this is something that probably we need to spend some time next week. I may even, um, maybe we should go ahead and uh, suspend the rest of chapter 20 and just talk about resurrection itself next week. That would be a good idea. Because uh, it's a fascinating subject anyway. Uh, but I, do, I, I need to get through the rest of the, the, rest of the outline. I, I'm, technically, I've got two minutes left. Um, the, the point is, and we can skip down here to letter B, everybody spends eternity somewhere. Everybody spends eternity somewhere, either in heaven or in the lake of fire. Now, 
Uh, and we'll talk about the, the differences and distinctions and resurrections next week. Now, number two, the final rebellion of Satan, verses 7 through 10. These last three verses here. Paul, could you just go ahead and read that? Verses 7 through 10. Okay, letter A. This is the great test of the millennial dispensation. Um, the millennial reign of Christ is a different dispensation from the, from the age of grace, uh, from the dispensation of grace. People will still be saved by grace. They always have been. The method of salvation has nothing to do with what age you're living in. Um, but here we have the, uh, the thousand years. After a thousand years of peace, prosperity, and righteousness, those who secretly resent holiness will revolt. You got to figure there's a lot of, because it says here that the multitude is like the sands of the sea. The people that Satan is going to be able to trick into revolting after he gets out of his prison. And he's let loose. He doesn't escape, by the way. He's purposefully let loose to be used of God one more time. Satan will prove to be an inspiring leader to sinful man whose hatred of righteousness seethes like a tea kettle. You ever, you ever, when you think about these mass shootings, in many cases, these are people with anger that has not been dealt with. It's festered into their hearts and it just boils up and one day it gets, but what's been keeping them down is they know they're not going to get away with it. Now, all of a sudden, here comes this guy. Here comes Satan. He seems to have great power. He seems to really know what he's talking about. And he's just the excuse they've been looking for. He's just... The, the, the personality they've needed to centralize around. And they are going to seize on that and get tricked. Ironside writes, It is a melancholy history indeed and emphasizes the truth that the heart of man is incurably evil. Likewise, Walford points out, in their inexperience of real temptation, they're easy victims of Satan's wiles. So their own flesh has been wanting to do something, but external barriers, safeguards, laws that are righteously enforced have kind of kept them from doing that because they know why. God's enforcers are everywhere. You can't get, a, get away from it. You're, it's going to be known the moment you do it, and it's going to get dealt with. And so this keeps a lot of people kind of in check, but all it takes is a little prompting from the master. We'll start at Gog and Magog next week, and then we'll take the rest of the time to talk about resurrections, okay? Because I think that's, I think that's a, it, it's an interesting topic. There's some good discussion in there. My goal when I started was to have Revelation finished by the end of the year, we are well on track to doing that, so there's absolutely uh, no, no trouble at all with taking some extra weeks here and there to discuss some different things. All right, um, so we'll pick up with Gog and Magog next week, and then we'll jump right into uh, Resurrections after that, and then we'll finish out the rest of the book.